What We Consume. Ahoy, ahoy, and welcome to What We Consume, a podcast about all the things we put into our minds and bodies. I'm your host, King Hagathor, and with me as always is my friend and co-host. Hey, it's me, Kevin. I'm here for the long haul. That's what they call me. That's my nickname, the long haul, if you get it. I have no idea what I'm trying to... Is old dick? Yeah, yeah, that, that's, that's what I was trying to say. Not that I was just spouting out nonsense and hopefully it picked up with somebody. Yeah, no, you totally nailed it. That's, so, that's what she said. Kevin, do you like amusement parks? Love amusement parks. I'm a Disney, I'm a Disney adult at heart. I've I've got a lot of fond memories of theme parks. My dad was always able to get us tickets one e- once a year for the one nearest us, and so we went uh, probably at least like seven or eight years that I can remember. It was always a great time. I also got to go to Universal Studios once when I was thirteen, which was also very fun. I haven't been to a theme park in probably a decade. As much as fun as I had, I I don't really have that much interest in returning. Like, I mean, like, I, I look at it with, like, rose-tinted glasses, you know, like, I remember, you know, the sights, the smells, all the uh, the features. Everything about that theme park brings up a really nice nostalgic memory. But I don't really have any desire to go to one as an adult. Are you talking uh, about Universal? Like, you remember all that stuff, or the one that you and your dad used to go to? No, no, the one uh, my family used to go to as a child. I mean, like, it's still a pretty good park but i i don't know just uh doesn't really appeal to me to go back i think part of me is just afraid it won't still have that magic for me as an adult as it did for a child i can tell you this if it was disney and if you actually liked disney and didn't think it was a cold and was going to take over the world and ruin everybody and you know your lack of optimism towards happiness uh you would you would get that feeling every time you walked into disney I think about it right now. I want to go. Maybe. I think I'd probably still have fun at... Like, I, I think I'd still have fun at the one I grew up on or the Universal Studios. Never really had much appeal going to Disney. But that's just personal preference. So I'm sure it's a good part. So you, um, you went to Universal when you were 13. I'm pretty sure I went to Universal almost around the same time. Did you go during, like, the summer? No, we went for uh, spring break. Dang. I, like, what would be crazy if we both ended up there at the same time and neither of us knew it? Because I'm pretty sure we both went when we were, th- when we were 13. That would be pretty wild. Like, I'm just in the background of one of your family photos or something. Well, it was just me and my mom. So, <laughs> well, I, close enough. That would be really cool, though. Yeah. So, anyways, what's the main attraction at theme parks? Roller coasters. Exactly. <laughs> I think of roller coasters as like the flagship that makes or break amusement parks. I mean, maybe the Ferris wheel to some people just because of its iconic shape and everything. But roller coasters are really where it's at. The reason I think that is because like when you're when you're on the highway and you're riding towards the theme park, like that's the first real sign you're getting close. You can see like at least one of them in the distance and you're just, you know, that anticipation builds. That's why I always think of them as the flagship. They're usually like the main attraction that brings the people in. So, for today's history lesson. In the 15th century, probably, could be a little bit earlier, could be a little bit later, uh, when the weather was cold enough, Russians would construct massive wooden ramps, cover them in ice, and slide down these mini mountains on sleds made of cut timber. So they invented sledding? Kind of. These were not your typical hills or anything. Children and adults alike would climb the wooden structures up to 70 feet, 21 meters, uh, to the summit and slide down these, what they called flying mountains, at speeds of up to 50 miles per hour, or 80 kilometers per hour. Some of these structures were even taller, over 100 feet tall, but at those speeds the trip was still quite brief. Allegedly, depends on who you which historian you read. In 1784, a new ride was constructed in St. Petersburg called the Katalnaya Gorka. It featured carriages and groove tracks that would travel up and down small hills based on the gravitational power 
uh, of the initial descent. This new design was possibly commissioned by Empress Catherine the Great and constructed on the orders of James III. The use of carriages removed the needs for winter weather, allowing the ride to be enjoyed year-round. Others believe that wheels were added when a variation of the Russian mountains, as they were called, was created in France, called La Montagne Russe à Belleville, the Russian mountains of Belleville. It was built in Paris in the early 1800s. Again, the sources kind of differ on when it was actually open to the public. Maybe as early as 1804, maybe as late as 1812. This uh, attraction had wheels on the sled, making uh, some people argue that it was the first roller coaster. There's quite a bit of debate between whether it was Catalnaya Gorka or La Montagne Russe, but either way, that's the first roller coaster. Sounds fun. In any case, in 1817, both La Montagne Russe and Promenades Arianas, or Aerial Walks, was built and opened in Paris. Both roller coasters had wheels. They would go on to improve by adding continuous tracks and eventually cables to haul the carts back up to the top of the hill, which must have been awesome because before that, somebody had to haul it up there and that those things had to be heavy. Well, didn't... Oh, I guess they would carry it back up. They weren't using, like, um, horses or Yeah, slaves. or maybe some... Well, probably not slaves and... Well, maybe. Anyways, these first rides were dangerous and led to a lot of injuries, but only made people more interested. Thrill-seekers flocked to try out this new, daring ride. These rides in Paris were supposedly going up to 40 miles an hour, or 64 kilometers. Across the Atlantic, the U.S. started looking at to their own thrill proto-coasters. The first one that I could find was the uh, Mouse Chunk Switchback Railway. It was designed by a mining company entrepreneur named Josiah White. It started as a nine mile, yeah, nine mile or 14.4 kilometer downhill journey with trains up to 14 cars long from the mines at Summit Hill to the Lehigh River landing at Mouse Chunk, a town that is known now known as Jim Thorpe. So that were they, that just sounds like a train ride, or were they going downhill without any, like... It pretty much was. Yeah, that's no roller coaster. I don't count it. Well, give it a minute. These uh, cars were loaded with up to 50,000 pounds or 23,000 kilograms of anthracite coal and powered by gravity on their downhill journey. The only stopping power was a single brave soul called a runner who would operate a brake lever. Initially, mules would carry the empty carts back up the mountain. Most of the coal loads were sent down in the morning. By afternoon, as the cars were less full, people started riding as well at the price of 50 cents per ride. Miners at the time were making about $1.20 per day, so it probably wasn't them riding. So it was, By the mi- it was a roller coaster, but it was a roller coaster where you put your life in the hand of one single man who hopefully will break for you. Yeah, hopefully he'll break, and hopefully the brake works. One brake. I'm assuming these aren't, like, full train cars. There must be, like, little ones. Well, they're coal cars, so, I mean, probably, like, the size you would see in something like uh, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Yeah, like the little car, like the little things that they always jump in, and you get in trouble, and you're flying around in the, like, tunnels and stuff that happens. Yeah. Okay. So it was probably those, but it could be kind of like you'd see on a big freight train where it's, you know, like half the height, but it's fully loaded with coal. Mm -hmm. In any case, 50,000 pounds is a lot of weight. So by the mid-1800s, coal demand was rising, making White think of a more efficient strategy. He added a backtrack with two 120-horsepower steam engines at the top of the adjacent Mount Pisgah. A ratchet rail was also added as an extra safety measure to keep cars from sliding back down the hill if the train malfunctions, a failsafe that later perfected often or became very common on modern roller coasters. So you know that like chunk, chunk, chunk when you're going up that first hill on a roller coaster? Yes. So that's a, yeah, a ratchet rail. So essentially like every step you go up, it can't go back because it'll hit that ratchet. Okay, so it works just like a ratchet wrench. It's... 
enabled one way and if it tries to go backwards you yeah that that's the way it's supposed to work yeah, yeah. By 1872, a tunnel was completed that was more efficient for coal, but the mouse chunk switchback continued to appeal to thrill seekers. 35,000 tourists annually were taking a now 18 mile or 29 kilometer ride up and down Mount Pisgah and its neighbor mountain, Mount Jefferson, at the cost of $1. This is in the 1800s? Yeah, this was uh, 1872 by the time they were. 35,000 people a year. That's a lot, to be honest. I mean, it's still hard to get around. So, like, those are frequent people traveling there to, like, go, like, ride it. Mm Mm-hmm. So then we get to uh, Coney Island, Big Sea. Back when it was an actual island, Coney Island was a small island with a low population and about three miles of sandy beaches. It was separated from the rest of Long Island by Coney Island Creek, which had no official crossing to connect it. The islands were so remote and the population was so low that Herman Melville worked on his famous book Moby Dick on the island in 1849. In the 1800s, people began to visit the island to vacation on its sandy, er, sorry, sandy south-facing beaches. I have to say, uh, what a way to tie in last week's episode or to episode five to this one. Yeah. We're just, uh, everything. everything's mashed together. It's all connected, man. So, by the 1870s, businessman William Engelman and Austin Corbin purchased some of this land to create beachside resorts. Engelman bought Brighton Beach to the west, and Corbin brought, bought Manhattan Beach to the east. They built hotels and had lavish openings that brought massive crowds overwhelming the newly established railroads that took tourists to the area. A third developer, Andrew R. uh, Culver, also started building on the island. These resorts initially focused on the societal elite with luxurious hotels, fine dining, and expensive entertainment, but as time went on, they also started catering for the middle class as well. Most of the amenities were still far too expensive for the common man. In 1884, inventor Lamarcus Thompson opened a 600-foot, or 183-meter, railway called the Switchback Railway. Not very creative with the name. Guests would climb a tower to get onto one of the open-air rail cars, and then be treated to a brief ride up and down Camelback Hills along the beach. The top speed was 6 miles an hour, or 9 kilometers per hour, so it was enjoyable, but rather tame. It's It kind of gave you, like, a little... Not a tour of the beach, but like a little scenic view of the beach. Gently up and down hills. Guests liked it so much that it only took Thompson three weeks to make back the $1,600 it cost him to build it. Jeez, at that time, that's, that's a lot of money. Yeah, I, I didn't find out how much he was charging, but um, to make it all back in three weeks is yeah, I mean, nice. Even if he was charging like a dollar, that's still good. Yeah, but soon others realized the profitability of roller coasters on Coney Island, and Charles Alcock, no, Alcock, uh, built his own scenic railway. I like Alcock. Yeah. Uh, his coaster also slightly improved on Thompson's design by connecting the tracks in a continuous loop, which deposited riders back at the tower they started at. So, the first one was like a one-way trip, so you'd either pay however much to ride it all the way back or you'd have to walk all the way back to get to the starting point the next year philip hinkle's roller coaster gravity pleasure road made a made the ride a little more thrilling it used a powered hoist to pull the cars up the first steep hill before letting gravity take care of the rest giving the riders an uh, exciting contrast to the leisurely scenic railways which i find kind of interesting because this one's called Gravity Pleasure Road, so like it makes it sound like it's the more relaxed scenic railway. But this is the first one that had like a big hill at the front and like actually got a bit of speed. But essentially, this started the American roller coaster arms race. Though the idea of a looping roller coaster had been attempted in Paris in the middle of the century, it was dangerous and uncomfortable. It wasn't the hit it was meant to be. These first looping roller coasters had no safety harness, 
the only thing that kept you in was holding on and the centrifugal force to keep you in your seat. Lap bars wouldn't be used on roller coasters until 1907. In 1985, Lena Beecher, a prolific inventor, created a the flip-flap railway, which was installed at the Sea Line Park in Coney Island. Sea Line Park would also feature one of the first water slides in America. Again, borrowing a design he saw in Europe, Paul Boyton had a ride called Shoot the Shoot, built at Sea Line Park. It featured riders in a large cart that would slide down a steep ramp and ended in a pond or pool and cruise to the shore. So essentially, like, pretty close to the first flume ride. I can't remember the one at our, what the one at ours was called. Um, Try to remember the, anyways. the Disney one, and I can't remember it. I know it's the one that they, don't they call it racist or something now? Because it's like the Canterbury Tales or Cadbury Tales or something. I don't know. Like I said, I've never been to Disney, so um, I. But I feel like don't you know would know the, the uh, bad stuff that went along with it. Well, I'm I'm sure I would recognize it if I saw it, but um, I can't think of anything Canterbury Tales related that would. Um, maybe that. Maybe that's not it. I don't know. No, Bra- Bear Rabbit. Is that it? Bra- oh, Br'er Rabbit? Rabbit? Yeah. That's it. Um, Are those even similar things that I just said? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, Canterbury Tales was um, Chaucer. It was um, English, um, like, fables. Yeah, not... Yeah, no... I, I mean, I guess they're both fables, so it's got that connection. Anyways... And, um, and you meant 18... 18- uh, 85, not 1985, right? Yes, yes, I did. Okay. Just so everybody knows, he didn't skip a whole century. Yeah, sorry. Unlike modern roller coasters that use an elliptical loop, the flip-flap was perfectly circular, producing up to 12 Gs of force, causing <gasps> excess discomfort and neck injuries. <laughs> that sounds awesome, I'm gonna be honest. 12 Gs, oh my god. That sounds awful, like... People must have passed out riding that. There's no way they didn't. They, there's no way they didn't pass out and throw up all the time. Yeah. Uh, so the the design was ambitious, but the discomfort and injuries made it lack popularity. Edward Prescott tried his own design, which featured a softer oval-shaped loop in his Loop the Loop roller coaster in 1901. It was certainly better than the flip-flap, leading to six years of being the top ride at Coney Island, but its low seating capacity made it eventually lose out to other rides. Roller coasters would continue to improve and get more impressive until hitting their golden age in the 1920s. Over 1,500 roller coasters were opened across the country, advanced by inventors including John Miller. John Miller was the chief engineer for Lamarcus Thompson, as well as working on designs for other engineers. He also held over 100 patents, mostly for roller coaster safety features, like the safety dog chain and safety ratchet. So he... He kind of perfected uh, the ratchet rail that uh, the mouse chunk had. It kept the roller coaster from rolling back down the hill, even if the pole chain broke. It, he also invented the upstop wheel, which kept the trains locked to the track. I'm pretty sure this is basically like you have a wheel above and below, so like on the rail. So like even if you did loops or turns or anything, like it's held on by both sides. These designs allowed roller coasters to be built faster, bigger, and with even more daring turns that would not be possible prior to his contributions. At least somebody was uh, thinking about safety at that time. Yeah, and getting a hundred patents mostly for safety, the stuff before this was real risky. Yeah, you're just throwing people on and hoping they don't die. Yeah, or at least hoping they pay first. Yeah. I hope I hope, um, hope we get into some deaths because I feel like that's where we're leading, and we're gonna have some we certainly final are. destination three roller coaster deaths happening. Honestly, I could have done a whole episode just on Coney Island, and we'll probably return to that at some point, just because some of the stuff they did there was fascinating. But we'll we'll keep moving for now. So roller coasters and amusement parks in general hit their golden age in the 1920s. Everyone was loving it. But then at the end of the 1920s was the Great Depression, and it hit roller coasters pretty hard because it was just simply too expensive for uh, riders when they were struggling to buy food or housing. 
Yeah, you I mean, couldn't you just see a bunch of kids and families going out? Yeah, let's go have fun on a roller coaster. But we got nowhere to live. We have no food. Everything's coming to an end. Yeah. Yeah. Good um, times. Like, like the Great Depression was uh, so bad that people had to, they couldn't afford undershirts. So people just went without it. Yeah, let alone um, them to afford happiness. I mean, come on. Yeah. They could still afford a whoopee cushion, though. I mean, you gotta have your whoopee. Yeah. Alright, so they would continue to be on the decline until Walt Disney opened Disneyland in Anaheim, California in 1955. Uh, This new amusement park caught everyone's attention and was so successful, amusement parks began rebuilding and expanding once more. Disney commissioned Ed Morgan and Carl Bacon of Arrow Development Company, now SNS Arrow, to design Matterhorn in 1959, the first steel roller coaster. So, before you move on, let me get this right. So, between the Great Depression and until 59, so like a 30-year period, nothing with the roller coasters happened, really? No, uh, I wouldn't say nothing. It was just fewer and far between. Um like there, there were still other places like Knott's Berry, where, or sorry, Knott's Berry Farm that we'll uh, get back to in a bit. But overall, it was just like a steep decline. It's kind of like the film industry had a pretty steep decline during COVID. They still had stuff coming out, but a lot of stuff was delayed. A lot of stuff was canceled. Uh, you know, so like it's still happening, but to a much lesser extent, just because it's just not viable at the moment. So, Matterhorn was the first steel roller coaster. They would also go on to build the uh, runway mine train for Six Flags over Texas in 1966. They also employed Ronald Valentine Toomer in 1965. Toomer had worked on uh, the first U.S. satellite launches. He developed the heat shield for the Apollo program. And he would go on to design over 80 steel roller coasters, including the Corkscrew, in 1975 at Knott's Berry Farm, one of, if not the first, modern looping coaster. So they had those ones back in the mid-1800s and also at the turn of the century that were looping roller coasters, but very few people enjoyed them because they were nightmares. Yeah. Yeah. So he developed the corkscrew in 1975. It was also the first to feature 360-degree rolls. So ones that would completely twist. He would develop the Magnum XL200 in 1989 for Cedar Point, an out-and-back roller coaster, and the first roller coaster over 200 feet tall. Finally, he would also design the Big Bad Wolf in 1984, which was the first suspension roller coaster at Busch Gardens. A lot of people think it's the Batman ride in 1992, but this one came out in 84. He did all of this while never riding on his own creations due to terrible motion sickness. Uh, I get that. I mean, yeah, I, that's fair. I can still ride roller coasters. You get me on a boat or something, I'm dying. I've never, uh, I've never had any issues with seasickness. I I enjoy the gentle rocking of a boat, but I can understand why it could really mess with some people. Yeah, you know what actually gets me is not roller coasters. But the little like fair rides, like a tilt a whirl or um, like uh, things like that, anything where you're actually like spinning, just in place, those get me. Yeah, those aren't great. You're talking about like the kind of stuff that like the teacups at Disneyland do. Yeah, but like hardcore. Yeah, I, I was never a big fan of those. I did like the one where you all get inside and it starts spinning and then the floor drops. So you're just like stuck to the oh, wall. Oh, like, yeah, yeah, they're like Gravitrons and stuff is what yeah. they call it down here. Yeah, I enjoyed those, but every uh, there was not one time I ever walked off of those that I wasn't sick. I, I think uh, <laughs> I, I think one time we my brother and I really pushed our luck and rode on it like seven times in a row and then got sick. But other than that, we never really had any motion sickness from it. Did you guys ever turn upside down and stuff? Oh yeah. Yeah. We, we did a lot of stuff you really weren't supposed to. Yeah. Most of the time the, the people who are controlling the ride, they see it and they just don't care. No, of course not. They're like 17 and hung over. (laughs) 
Alright, so uh, currently the three fastest roller coasters in the world are capable of doing over 120 miles per hour. So number three is the Top Thrill Dragster. It's 120 miles per hour, 193 kilometers per hour at Cedar Point in Ohio. Uh, number two is King Ka, which does 128 or 205 kilometers per hour at Six Flags Great Adventure in New Jersey. You said, it's also, you said 128 to 205? No, 128 miles per hour to 205. Oh, okay. I was like, that's a huge gap. Like, you can get yeah. either one of those. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a huge gap. It's also the tallest roller coaster in the world at 500, or sorry, 456 feet tall. That's a big boy. It is a big boy. The number one fastest roller coaster in the world at this moment is the Formula Rosa uh, at Ferrari World in Abu Dhabi, United Arab Emirates. It goes 149.1 miles per hour or 239 kilometers per hour. Could you imagine? Like, that's wild. I wonder how quick it goes, too. Like, Well, the, these... Oh, um... Let's see here. Uh, the King Ka gets up to top speed in like 3.5 seconds. Formula Rosa gets up to top speed in 5 seconds. I don't know. They use... Like, to for people to comprehend that, that is insane speed. Like, it, that is going to throw you back into the seat to where you cannot move your head or body. That's a couple of Gs, isn't it? We'll get to that in just a second, but all three of these rides, anything going this fast, you have to wear special gear to ride in it because it's open air. You have to wear special glasses because if you caught a bug <laughs> in the eye going that fast, it would like rip a hole through the back of your skull. That'd be awesome though. <laughs> oh, that'd be so brutal. So even being the fastest roller coasters in the world, guests usually only experience about 1.7 Gs of force while accelerating and can experience up to 4.8 during the ride. Still nowhere near the flip to flap or the flip flaps 12 Gs. No. That that's insane in general like feeling Gs like on on your body in any type of way is just like it, it's indescribable how crazy it feels. Yeah, it's also incredibly impressive how much they were able to knock that down while going so much faster. It's called science, people. Science. <laughs> so uh, that's a short history of roller coasters. As I said uh, previously, the early rides were quite dangerous. Roller coasters aren't the only attractions at theme parks, nor are they the only dangerous ones. But that is part of the appeal, a sense of being close to danger. Most riders want kind of the illusion of danger. The danger's there, but you're hoping the ride is still safe. Yeah, you want the you, just... you want the adrenaline rush, those endorphins going through all, throughout your body. You want to feel like you're a dangerous person, like you're Tom but Cruise you're still, in Top Gun. You still want to be able to you still want to be able to walk away from it afterwards. But let's talk about a couple of rides where riders ended up closer to danger than they intended. So we're starting off with one of the worst. This is the Battersea Park Fun Fair disaster of 1972. So 50 years ago, as of this past May, at Battersea Park, London, England, the Fun Fair's main attraction was a roller coaster called the Big Dipper. It was one of the most exciting rides around, considered the London Eye of its day, according to Toby Porter of London News. The London Eye is London's massive Ferris wheel. Mm -hmm. So back in the day before that was built, the Big Dipper was like that. Uh, let's see here. Okay, so 31 people boarded the three cars of the wooden roller coaster ready to be thrilled. They were nearing the summit of the initial hill about 50 feet, 15 meters in the air when the cars detached from the steel drivetrain and it began to slip backwards. Then to make things work, the brake also failed, sending them racing back towards the start but before they could reach it, the the last track or the last train jumped the tracks at the curve. One of the riders that day was Carolyn Amzik, or sorry, Adamzik, said in a 2015 interview, quote, "As soon as we started shooting backwards, everything went into slow motion. I turned around and saw the brake man desperately trying to pull the brake on it, but it wasn't working. Many of the carriages didn't go around the bend. One detached and went off the side through a wooden hoarding." 
People were groaning and hanging off the edge. It was awful. This girl screamed that she wanted to get off, but she leant on a wooden barrier and it collapsed. I tried to grab for her, but I saw her fall to the ground in front of me. I told everyone to stay where they were as I tried to find a way down, but I realized as I was walking down, I was walking in blood. So that's pretty nuts. That sounds like a creepy pasta you just pulled out of thin air, but it's totally true. In total, five children would be killed by this accident, and another 13 riders would be injured. After the incident, a a post-crash investigation revealed 51 faults with the ride. The ride had a similar incident happen in 1968, though the only major injury was a woman breaking her arm. In 1970, the ride itself had suffered pretty severe damage from a fire that was suspected to be arson. With this ride's troubled history, the ride manager and engineer were put on trial for manslaughter. The prosecutor cited dozens of flaws and safety concerns, described the ride as a death trap. But it wasn't enough. Both men were cleared of all charges by November of 1973. The ride was closed down and demolished, replaced by a steel roller coaster known as the Cyclone. It wasn't enough to bring back park attendance, though, and in addition to other development problems, the whole park shut down in 1974. Since then, the site of the funfair has been used for various temporary attractions, but never anything permanent. The survivors have had to live with the trauma of the event, and as of this year have been attempting to get a permanent memorial to those they lost. I don't think they've been successful yet. They have been getting a lot more attention recently, so we'll see how that goes. They should make it a haunted house. And have that the seems, souls of the dead come back to haunt them. That seems pretty poor taste. But it would be interesting. Oh, well, I'm sure a lot of people would love it. And they would and then but, and then they're the rod and then they construct the old roller coaster again and you have to take your chances on it. With all the flaws. <laughs> Yikes. So, from the UK to down under, this is the uh, Sydney Ghost Train Fire of 1979. That sounds spooky. Yeah, so, Luna Park, Sydney, New South Wales, Australia. The Luna Park Ghost Train was a dark ride-style attraction. Basically, it's an indoor train ride where visual tricks and dark lighting are used to control riders' view and sense of distance. I don't know if you had any of those. We had one called... The something cyclone. It was it was pretty fun. I don't think this one was, was designed like the one I'm used to, but on June 9th, 1979, a fire broke out inside the Luna Park ghost, ghost train around 10.15 p.m. Approximately 35 passengers as well as staff were on the ride when, the, when they spotted smoke. The ride staff raised the alarm and began evacuating passengers as they exited the tunnel. The staff battled the flames for an hour before getting control and saving the adjacent rides, the river caves, and their own Big Dipper. I don't know if it was designed the same or if it just had a the same name. There's a lot of roller coasters known as the Big Dipper, like, throughout history. It's just a spiffy name, you know, the Big Dipper. Yeah, if it works, it works. The fire had been so hard to control because they were understaffed, the water pressure was too low, and the park's fire hose system was inadequate at covering the affected area. Initially, it was believed that everyone had escaped relatively unharmed, but later that night, while investigating, they found seven bodies had perished in the tunnels. Investigators speculated that they had climbed out of the cars to try to escape on foot and perhaps could have survived if they had stayed in the cars, but eyewitnesses stated that they saw cars coming out of the ride on fire, so most likely they didn't really have a chance either way. That'd be terrifying. Like, yeah. on a like roller coaster, and just it's burning underneath you, and you know there's nothing that you can do, because you can't get off because you're going to go into the fire. The park was shut down so a federal investigation could be carried out. There was no conclusive cause of the fire. Speculated Speculation ranged from faulty wiring to possible arson by a local underworld figure. Underworld uh, figure. <laughs> yeah. The investigation did find that despite recommendations from the fire department 18 months prior, Luna Park's management failed to create an adequate fire suppression system or install a sprinkler system. So basically they were just, at that time, they were like, hey, uh, that weird kid over there, we don't like him. He set it on fire. He's different. He wears dark clothes. (laughs) I'm, I'm sure there was plenty of rumors to that effect going around. 
1987, the investigation was reopened and determined that the police investigation at the time was inadequate, but no new evidence was presented. A memorial park was opened in 2007, but that wasn't the only incident like this. The next one is the Haunted Castle at Six Flags Great Adventure in Jackson, New Jersey in 1984. So just five years after the Luna Park tragedy, the United States had their own. The Six Flags Castle started out as a humble haunted house made of four trailers meant as a test to gauge audience interest. After the year was over, they moved it to another park until 1982 when they moved it back for the 1983 season. It came back bigger than ever. Instead of the four trailers and a plankwood house motif, this new improved version had 17 trailers, two parallel lanes of uh, eight trailers long with a control trailer in the center. The attraction featured an impressive plywood castle facade, giving it the illusion of being bigger than it was. Attendees could walk through the haunted house to be frightened by lights, noises, mannequins, and costume employees. It was a massive hit, but park officials didn't really pay attention to it beyond that. So it was making them money, but, you know, it's just... It's set. There aren't a lot of moving parts. They don't have to worry about it, right? So on the night of May 11th, 1984, a fire began inside the structure. Fanned by the structure's air conditioning, the blaze swept through the structure quickly and burned for over an hour. Nearly 30 people were inside the attraction at the time. Eight never made it out. The fire had burned at more than 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit, or 1,093 degrees Celsius, with flames described by one witness as leaping 100 feet into the air. The entire structure was destroyed by the fire. Initially, just like at Luna Park, it was believed that everyone had made it out. With such an intense blaze, when investigators combed through the wreckage, they found what they thought at first were mannequins, but realized they were bodies burnt beyond recognition. Their first tentative and they first tentatively identified the bodies by jewelry, car keys, and other possessions that were able to survive the heat, but positive IDs had to be done by dental records in the investigation that followed. All of those who perished were under 18 years old. Dang. So basically what I'm hearing is if you're on some type of roller coaster ride or fixed cart ride and a fire happens, your likelihood of surviving is low. Yeah, it's really not good. Seven others had to be taken to the nearest hospital for smoke inhalation and other injuries. Andrea Smeal, a park official, said that before the park was open for the year, fire inspectors had checked every ride and attraction. Had it been a viol- had there been a violation, the park would not have been allowed to open. But the investigation revealed a different story. The structure only had three emergency exits, because- and because it was considered a temporary structure, it lacked both smoke alarms and any sort of sprinkler system. They did initially have smoke alarms, but, um, I, well, at least they said they initially had smoke alarms, but because vandals kept breaking them, they weren't replacing them as often as they needed to. Dang vandals. I think that's, yeah, sure. Just like the weird kid in the dark clothes. Mm Mm-hmm. So the year before the fire, an anonymous employee had sent a report regarding safety concerns, but when asked to state all the safety violations, he wrote, or he or she wrote, Forget it. Too numerous to mention. Jeez. So, so that's so that's good. Eventually, Six Flags Great Adventure, its parents' company, uh, Six Flags, two park executives, the general manager, and his predecessor were all charged with manslaughter and reckless endangerment. In court, the defense would successfully argue that they were not at fault because they, the fire was arson. After a witness came forward to say someone had been using a lighter to see... Uh, in an area with a broken strobe light, and had caught some foam padding on fire starting the blaze. That didn't address the lack of safety prevent, like fire safety prevention, but it was enough to protect them in criminal court. So the families of the deceased sued, and Six Flags ended up paying in all eight cases. Yeah, Uh, they should. Yeah, the tragedy did cause a new legislation in regards to fire prevention standards, causing numerous rides to be shut down until they could prove that they had improved their standards and equipment. So, like, this fire happened, and so new legislation was like, all right, well, you have to have all this stuff on all your rides. And so, like, numerous rides had to be shut down all over just because, like, 
none of them, or a lot of them weren't up to standards. Basically, if you rode any type of wooden roller coaster or something made of wood in the 80s, you're lucky to be alive. <laughs> it does kind of feel that way the more stories you look at. Although it wasn't just the uh, wooden ones you had to worry about. Next up, we're going with the Perilous Plunge at Knott's Berry Farm in California. So you were asking, was anyone doing anything during the Great Depression? Knott's Berry Farm started off as a roadside berry stand run by Walter Knott's uh, on Roots, or sorry, State Route 39 in the 1920s. It quickly grew with shops, a restaurant, and other attractions popping up as the amount of visitors grew. One of their slogans was America's First Theme Park. During the Great Depression, this thing was still growing from a just a berry stand on the side of the road to quickly becoming like a pretty massive uh, tourist attraction. I like that went from berry stand to theme park. That's a it's a big jump. Yeah, it's it's interesting, but it was essentially just like people came for the berries, and so somebody else set up a shop next to it, and. You know, more people started setting up shops, so there was more reason to come. So, like, you'd come to your berries, and then, like, you'd have a couple of things. And then there was a restaurant. They also had, like, a ghost town and a couple of other things. So, like, this thing just kept on growing, and because it was growing, more people were coming. And since more people were coming, it kept growing. So it's like a little girl set up a lemonade stand on the end of the street, and people just started building their houses around it. Yeah, and all of a sudden it's six flies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so the Perilous Plunge was announced in 1999 and de- debuted as the world's tallest water slide in September of 2000. Boats that fit 24 passengers were towed to a height of 121 feet before making a short U turn and dropping down a 115 foot drop into the splashdown lagoon. The passengers were restrained by a lap bar as well as individual seatbelts. In 2001, a 40-year-old woman, Lori Mason Lares, was ejected from the ride in motion and plummeted to her death in the lagoon below. When the ride completed its run, both the seatbelt and the lap bar were locked and secured. She just phased through it? Initially, that is kind of what it seems like. This was the first time anyone had been injured on that ride specifically, although people had died and had been injured in other attractions. The Department for Occupational Safety and Health did a thorough investigation of the ride and concluded that the park would need to either change its safety restraints or restrict those who could ride. That's because the victim weighed 292 pounds, and the investigation concluded that her waist was 58 inches, which was 8 inches longer than the 50-inch seatbelt. So instead of wrapping it around her waist, she had wrapped it around her legs, which did not safely restrain her as the design was intended. Because of this, when the ride dropped, she slipped right out of the lap bar and simply dropped independent of the boat. That's still wild that she, like, slipped out. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Um, So the, the ride manufacturer obviously blamed her and also blamed her not holding on. They said if she had been holding on, she would have been fine. But nobody holds on during those rides. Everyone's got their hands in the air. Yeah. And, like, even in, like, their photos of, like, this is how to properly ride, everyone's got their hands in the air in the photos. So You can't. You always have to factor in human error. If you you don't factor in that, then you're you're looking for someone to get killed. Yeah. Just like in um, Haunted Castle Fire, like... You shouldn't be building shit out of flammable material if you're not going to have any fire standards. Yeah. In this case, like you, you shouldn't have a ride that someone can just slip out. If if they can't fit, they can't ride. But that was the view of the Department of Health and Safety. They concluded the ride should have had safety features that would protect against that. So I think on that one, they uh, they ended up having over the shoulder harnesses. And that ride lasted until 2012 when it was removed to make room for other rides. So the next one is the Ride of Steel at Darien Lake Theme Park, New York. The Ride of Steel, a 200-foot roller coaster, could reach speeds of over 70 miles per hour, 112 kilometers. In 2011, 
A 29-year-old Army veteran, James Thomas Hackerman, was ejected from the ride and fell to his death. This came only a couple months after an 11-year-old girl fell, fell from the top of the Ferris wheel and also died. When investigating uh, Hackerman's death, it was noted that he was a double amputee below the waist. He was hit by an IED while serving, uh, where he lost his right leg below the knee and left leg all the way up to the hip. Because of this, he wasn't actually tall enough for the ride requirements. But they had skipped the sign because disabled riders board from the exit instead of the entrance. He was assisted into the roller coaster by the family member he was riding with, so the employees failed to address that he should not have been on the ride. Because of this, the ride's restraints were not sufficient to hold him in the ride, and he was flung out. Bro, that's so unfortunate and sad. He, he survives an IED, and then he dies after he comes back, and he's trying to have some fun. Yeah, it, it, like, he... he I, th- I think he got injured in 2008 for the next three years. Like after he's recovered, he's, you know, like helping other disabled veterans. He's trying to like be out there and in the community. And he was just trying to have a fun day with, you know, one of his family members. And then he gets on this ride and the ride doesn't have like shoulder harnesses or anything. And just whoop, out it goes. I like when you uh, say ejected, like a, a rider was ejected from it, and it, it's like you're implying that the weird kid in the black is over there sitting in the corner just giggling, and he's like, okay, and he clicks his button, and he the guy just gets ejected out. That's fair. It does kind of sound like his seat had springs, but I mean, like, there's only so many times I can say slipped out of a ride b- before it sounds like they're lubed up with jelly. So, I mean, like, what am I going to do? No, I like ejected. I'm just doing uh, everybody, every time you, if he says it again, just picture the weird kid in all black over in the corner pressing his little button as soon as he says ejected. And then he's giggling like an evil, uh, evil little mouse. I thought you were going to say every time I say ejected, somebody needs to drink. So uh, the final one we'll talk about today is Freefall, yeah, the Freefall ride at Icon Park, Orlando, Florida. So earlier this year, fourteen-year-old Tyree, yeah, Tyree Sampson was visiting the Orlando theme park. He went on the Freefall Tower. The tower is the tallest Freefall Tower in the world and had just opened this past December. It stands over four hundred and thirty feet tall and drops patrons at seventy-five miles per hour. Tyree Sampson was six foot two, three hundred and eighty pounds. At fourteen. Oh my gosh. Yeah, this was a big boy. Very large for a fourteen year old. Yeah. He was for the very large for any person. Yeah. He he was also um I I forgot which uh he played a sport. He was also an honor student. That doesn't really come into play here, but just he, he was a large boy, and when the ride stopped its descent, still 100 feet in the air, Samson was ejected, um, <laughs> falling to the concrete below. So this is at Universal Orlando? No, no, this is at Icon Park, which is also in Orlando, Florida, but it opened in 2015. Okay, okay. So this is a different theme park. Why, um, why, I mean, no offense to, like, if you're bigger or anything like that, but why would they let him on the ride? Well, I, I did see one report that he had been turned away from a couple other rides. We'll get to why he was allowed on it in a, uh, just a second. So, normally, a light and an alarm appears if it alerts the operator that a seat's restraints are not secure. But that didn't happen because the seat had been manually adjusted to fit his size. The manual for ride size requirements has a maximum, or uh, sorry, a minimum height, but not a maximum height. The manual also states that the maximum weight is supposed to be 130 kilograms or 287 pounds. Nice. So almost 100 pounds under what he weighed. So that's not the kid's fault. He just wanted to ride and most likely believed that they wouldn't have let him on if his size was an issue. Ride safety expert Nathan McDonald says rides should have a maximum weight tolerance and have scales at rides to ensure guests are within range, not for body shaming, but for safety. 
that's going to be a hard one to throw at an American public because yeah, there's no way it's going to be looked yep. at as body shaming all the way. Yeah, and I mean we we got some biggins, so like you're just you got to develop your rides to be more than the max. That, that's um, a big reason why I wanted to get healthier so I could ride roller coasters when I was older and with yeah. my kids and stuff, so I you know I could fit safely. Right. Yeah, so because they manually adjusted the seat, there was like an extra seven inches than there would normally for uh, a rider that was in the size requirements. So, like, essentially, like, it it drops from 430 feet, it drops down to 100 feet, and then, like, it, it goes up and down a couple more times. But on that initial drop, he just shot right out. Yeah. I hate those rides, um, by the way. I don't really find them that appealing. Um, honestly, I don't really enjoy most theme park attraction rides. Next time you come I, down I, here, we're, we're forcing you to go to like Six Flags or something. No, this is where we'll take you and Michael. We'll take you both to Dollywood. Dollywood? I, you guys would love Dollywood. That's where Dolly... That's Dolly Parton's theme park. I assume so. Yeah. You... <laughs> I just want you to see it. Uh, I I do imagine there would be some pretty humorous moments of Michael and I right, walking around Dolly Land. <laughs> All right, so that's where we're going to stop for today, and we'll pick it up in part two, where we discuss a couple more incidents, and then also the reason why behind a lot of these incidents. Because, I mean, like, I gave you the reason for it specifically. Because I gave it uh, to you, like, the specific reason these certain rides failed. But there is so many other stories out there. And there's an overarching reason why these things keep happening. We'll discuss that on part two. I think, because... I think I've kind of explained why this keeps happening. It's the kid... The weird kid on the side, in the black, ejecting kids. But assuming that it's not just the weird kid on the side. Then it's greed and money. Well, that certainly plays a factor, too. That's where we're going to end it. Do you have any uh, final thoughts on this one? No, I love it, and I'm very excited for the next part of this. I'm ready to keep hearing about death and taking away our happiness from theme parks and people burning alive and why we're doing it and i hope i hear some more about some ejecting things but uh hey before king wraps us up please go follow us on twitter at what we consume oh my gosh does it have underscores yeah it's what underscore we underscore consume you can also follow me on twitter i'm at king hagathor no spaces and then also follow us on Instagram at What We Consume Podcast, all one word. And uh, we, I mean, we put up videos and fun little things. And if you comment, we will interact with you. So that's it for us today. Bye bye. <laughs>